Welcome, everybody. Uh, we are in Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. So let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to look at all 13 verses. We set an elaborate trap this morning to find out who are fans of Jesus and fans of the Eagles. And so you passed, all right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And let me reset where we are in the text here. The author of Hebrews wants you to persist in faith. He's warned you all throughout this book not to shrink away, not to fall back, not to neglect so great a salvation, not to shrink back in fear, but to persist in faith. And all throughout the book, there's been warnings along those lines that you need to persist, that you can grow, that you need to continue, that you need to endure. Even though tests and trials have rocked your faith, even though you have struggled, even though uh, you have walked in such a way that at times your faith is in doubt, He wants you to persist in faith. And if you've not yet believed, He wants you to finally cross the line of faith. And the truth is that times are changing in America. There has never been an easier time for you to abandon the faith. Never in our culture, never in our history, never in the past 300 years has it been easier for you to walk away from the faith. Let me kind of explain what I mean. Generations of cultural Christianity, not genuine Christianity, but generations of cultural Christianity, as well as other cultural conventions, have been under fire for the last few decades. You have seen institutions crumble. There has been a cultural shift away from church, away from Christianity, away from Jesus. And so if you were just a cultural Christian, not a genuine Christ follower, but if it was uh, popular for you and your culture and your community to attend church, you didn't necessarily have to have faith in Jesus. You didn't have to step out as a radical A lot of times businesses would encourage you to go into a church if you were a secular business leader. They would say go into a church and and become a member and get involved and it's a a good place for you to get prospective business and for you to get uh, help for your your insurance company or whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, And those days are long gone. It's no longer culturally acceptable just to go to church. People don't come here any longer because the cultural winds have changed. Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, He said, the wind blows where it pleases, but the Spirit, in the same way, it is moving, and you can't predict that movement. But we have seen evidence that the Holy Spirit has been actively moving in the Americas over the last three or four hundred years. But those winds seem to have changed. The concentration of the activity of the Spirit seems to be in the Middle East and in Central Asia where God is redeeming thousands upon thousands, where churches are growing by uh, in numerous numbers. Disciples are being multiplied. Missionaries are being sent out. But the central activity of God seems to be in the Middle East and in Asia these days. What does that mean for us in America? Does it mean that the church will go the way of Europe? Does that mean that, that the, the identifying nature of us who believe will be the remnant church? 
Does that mean that if the cultural winds are now in our face rather than at our backs, that it's not easy to stand up and say, I believe in Jesus because of the threat of persecution, because of the threat of loss of business, because of the threat of loss of relationships? If that's true for you, if that's true for us, that that naming the name of Jesus publicly now costs you more than it did 20 years ago, then that may mean that the name of uh, the the moniker for the uh, church going forward will be faithfulness and remnant and endurance through struggle. It's probably a common experience for you to see people who once sat in these very pews no longer name the name of Jesus. Now walk away from the faith altogether. And that will increase as the cultural winds are against us. So the expression, uh, this is in some ways good, right? In some ways this is good because the, the expression of genuine Christianity, the expression of an authentic follower of Christ is potent and it's beautiful. It, it endures under trial. It says, uh, under persecution, it says that only am I blessed because I, I can be uh, mistreated in the same way that Jesus was mistreated. That, that when persecution comes, like the new believers in Acts, they could say um, that, that we were counted as worthy to suffer along with the name of Jesus. When Christianity is expressed in its most potent, purest form, there is love toward enemies. There is prayer for those who persecute you. There is joy in trials. There is camaraderie among fellow believers. There is a a minimizing of differences and a maximizing of what unifies us. And this sort of Christianity is potent and it's powerful and it grows and it spreads and it changes people's lives, though it be smaller in numbers, though it be smaller in buildings. Gone are the days, I think, of mega churches and mega super mall kind of church buildings. And the future, I think, is in a potent, powerful band of believers who come together uh, on a week-to-week basis more as a kingdom outpost who recognizes that there's an enemy and that we're in wartime and prayer is a a wartime walkie-talkie and and that when we come together for fellowship, it's not um, we don't come together because we have a great facility and because we have a great um, ministry and because we have all these great programs and because we have a lot for you as a family to choose from, but we come together because we have a great Savior. And because of that great Savior, we come together and we huddle together and we pray for each other and we encourage each other and we pat each other on the back and we send each other back out into a wartime mentality. And so the gathering of believers in a place like this isn't marked by the, the, the fanciness of a facility or the amazing programs that we have, but it's come together by the faithful proclamation of the Word of God in the context of the worship of the exalted Jesus Christ. That's a potent Christianity that I would trade for a cultural Christianity any day. But it's not without its painful losses. It hurts. It hurts to look around and see people who once worshipped with you now somewhere else on Sundays. Now not in church anymore. Now not naming the name of Jesus. Now publicly posting their doubts about Christianity altogether or their waywardness or their alternative lifestyles or all the different things that have... uh, that have caused so much destruction. Whether the winds of cultural Christianity are at our back or not, in any generation there is the likelihood that your faith will be tested. You will be tempted and tested in your faith. There will be trials uh, that will come. Prayers will go unanswered. Leaders and friends and family members will fall away. 
of people that were spiritually significant in your life will reject Jesus and embrace the culture. God will seem silent to you for a season. The very foundations of your faith will be shaken. And as the passage that Julie read in 1 Peter says, it is so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be proved on that day. But for those who persist in faith, for those who walk the long obedience in the same direction, there is joy immeasurable. There is peace that surpasses all understanding. There is an abounding love. There is grace that never ends. There is correction and rebuke and discipline when we stray. There is the witness of the Spirit. There is fruitfulness. But then comes the reward. Then comes the reward. And the reward is God with us and us with Him. That us in His presence, in the glory of, of His presence. There's the reward. And though thousands may fall all around you, for those who persist in faith, God holds you. God holds you. He sustains you through those trials and difficulties as your eyes are on him. And as you say, I will never let go, Jesus, my faith is firm and it is on you. And my eyes are fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is the clear message of Hebrews. One of the clear warnings in Hebrews is that if you're an unbeliever, You've been under the rain that waters the ground for a long time. And if you bear thorns and thistles, that is, if there's no evidence of the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life, if there's no fruitfulness in your life, then you need to believe. You need to take the step of faith. If you have maintained a hard-hearted posture that you acknowledge that Jesus is good and that you acknowledge that He is Lord, but you have failed to give personal faith to Him, you need to cross the line of salvation. That's the warning of Hebrews that you can no longer harden your heart and resist putting your faith in Jesus and finally bending the knee and saying, I submit, I yield, I give my life to you. You can do a better job of running my life than I can. That's for the unbeliever in the crowd, the book of Hebrews message. For the believers, it's don't fall away, persist, endure, remain. We saw that in Hebrews 2. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Hebrews 3, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart, an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from God, but exhort one another as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 4, 1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest Stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Hebrews 4, 11-12 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Hebrews 4, 14 says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us do what? Let us hold fast our confession. All throughout the book of Hebrews, you'll see these warnings Issued to the believers, persist, hold fast, maintain your faith, continue to pursue Jesus Christ in your affection for Him. And for those who have not yet believed, the, the warning is clear as well. Cross the line of faith while you still have time. It's a merciful cry. And the struggle is real. It was real for us. It's real for those Hebrews who heard this message because at the time they were being persecuted. At the time they were tempted to backslide to fall back into a former way of life. And though their former way of life is unusual to us, it's temple Judaism. Very few of us are tempted to go back to temple Judaism, right? 
Probably not many of you who look at a sheep or a lamb and say, I'm really tempted right, to, to offer the sacrifice, to, to take this to Jerusalem. Very few of us can identify with that sort of temptation. But if we lift the principle out of the time in which it was written and we apply it to where we are today, you can see that it probably applies to many of you. You're tempted to go backward into a lifestyle that you knew. You're tempted to not take a step of faith and to name the name of Jesus publicly and to to persist in faith, but you're tempted to go backward to a life that you enjoyed before. Because we tend to hold on to things that are familiar, don't we? We tend to gravitate toward what is habitual. Though it's not helpful, though it may even be destructive to your life and to your family and to your business, we tend to to take uh, notice of things that will ruin us if it's familiar, if it's habitual. We often fail. We often hold on to things for our own destruction because it seems better than taking a risk or a step of faith. And that's true for all of us, just as it was for the original audience. They were tempted to fall back into something that was familiar. Something that wasn't as risky. Something that didn't cost so much. And for them it was temple Judaism. For you it might be something else. For you it might be a lifestyle. For you it might be an addiction. For you it might be a habit. For you it might just be a return to a comfortable cultural Christianity. Maybe you'd like to find a church where you can go and it's just not so biblical. (laughs) Or maybe they just sing the songs that we used to sing and and the programs that are familiar and it's just not so radical. I'm not saying that about this church. I'm just saying that in general that our temptation is to go toward what's familiar and comfortable and habitual. This text wants you to persist. The author wants you to persist in faith. And so he's going to teach you about Jesus' ministry about the great high priest. And it's part of the evidence that he's stacked up all through the book. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than, than the, the Moses. Jesus is better than the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus is better than the priesthood. He's better than the, the temple sacrifices. Don't go backward. Jesus is superior, persistent faith. And this is one more slice of evidence that he wants you to use to persuade you to persist in faith or to believe if you've not yet believed. So with that in mind, let's read verses eight, chapter 8, verses 1 through 13 together. I love the clarity, starting in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
and not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed them, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And you can see in this passage, you can see in this passage a comparison. There's the Old Covenant, there's the Old Testament, there's the Old Way, the Old Priesthood, the Old Sacrificial System, the Old Way of Doing Things, and it's becoming obsolete. It's expiring. I remember as a high school kid coming in the kitchen, going to the refrigerator, grabbing a jug of milk and drinking it, and it expired. <laughs> right? Have you ever had expired milk, you know instantly it's no good, right? And you have no regard for that any longer. This old covenant was expired. It was expired. It was no longer good. It was becoming obsolete. Jesus initiated a new covenant, a better covenant. And we're going to show how it was better. In this part right here, it just describes the ministry of Jesus, a job description, if you will. But this gives us a bit of insight it caused me to ask the question, what is Jesus doing right now? What is He doing right now? Like Literally, what is He doing? Is He, is he relaxing? Is He in like an eternal lazy boy? Is He working? Is He traveling? Is he, what's He doing? He finished the work that He had to finish on earth. What's He doing right now? This text gives us a bit of insight into that. It's like a job description. The primary purpose of this passage is not to give us a job description, but, but we can talk about it in that way because if you understand who Jesus the great high priest is and what he's doing, it's going to help you persist in faith. And so let's take a look at what Jesus is doing right now. It's like a job description. You understand job descriptions? I read some funny job descriptions this week. People often ask me about my job description. I said it must be nice to work just on Sunday mornings. Uh, to not have a job during the week. What do you even do all week? You just kind of play golf and hang out? And it's funny the perception that people have of what pastors do. Uh, funny perceptions are that, that I don't do anything. That Monday, this is my only work time. Uh, somebody asked me once, hey, I put some money in the offering plate because I know that's how you get your salary. And as though I'm going in the back room at the end just saying, well, our family can eat this week, Right? No, I have a set salary and I make a regular wage and, and I have regular office hours uh, that include uh, time on, on Monday through Friday. I take uh, Mondays, half day Monday, half day Tuesday off uh, completely. So this is like my Friday afternoon where this is kind of the, high, the end of my week. Uh, and so in a lot of ways, uh, I'll, I'll take a, uh, some time off in the next 24 to 48 hours and then I'll, I'll hit it hard Tuesday afternoon and I uh, spend about 18 to 25 hours a week in sermon preparation, about 8 to 10 hours in personal counseling and marriage counseling and, uh, and outreach and ministry and about 8 hours in administrative work uh, from time to time. So that adds up to 48 to 55 hours a week. Pretty typical for what you do as well. 
Um, but I have a job description. I have um, administrative roles. I have oversight roles. I have spiritual roles, prayer roles. There are times I'll come in here and I'll, I'll vacuum the sanctuary while I pray for families. Um, I have duties that I accomplish during the week. And they're, they're ministry roles. They're roles that serve you, that serve the Lord, that serve the gospel, that serve the purpose. This passage gives us insight into what Jesus is doing right now. So let's take a look at that. In chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, it, it gives us the location. Right? It's important to know where you work. And this gives us the location of Jesus' ministry. Uh, he says the point of what we're saying is that we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. That's an important place. <laughs> That's an important place. The disciples, you remember uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, they asked Jesus, hey, when you, when you go to be in your kingdom... Give us places of prominence next to you. We want to sit at your right hand and at your left hand, right? And Jesus said, I can't give those. Those are important places. Those are very important places. Jesus has a seat next to the majesty of God in heaven. That's an enormously important location. And it's a better location than the high priest who ministered in Jerusalem in the temple which they were tempted to go back to. Why would you go back to uh, the Jerusalem temple high priest who serves in a shadow or a type or a copy when you could serve Jesus who is literally next to the majesty of God in heaven on the throne next to Him right there. Now the temple was a good place for God's presence in the fading covenant, in the old covenant, but it wasn't God's literal dwelling place. Uh, it was... Jesus serves in an eternal dwelling place of God, not a temporary place. Um, heaven is not this temporary temple. You think about the temple, it was temporary. Who built the first temple? It was Solomon, right? Before that, the temple was a tent and it traveled around the desert. And, and when that was fading, David built himself a palace and he, he, what? he felt bad that God's presence dwelt in a tent. And so who built the temple? Solomon built the temple. And it endured for many years. This temple lasted until 586 when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian invasion took over and destroyed the temple. The temple mount was left vacant and in rubble until when? Until the exiles began to return from Babylonian captivity. And when they came back, it was reconstructed beginning with Zerubbabel in 515. And when the people saw it, they wept, right? They wept. This is nothing like the former house. Nothing like what it was before. It's just a shadow of it. But, but then in uh, 20 BC, uh, Herod the Great began to restructure and revitalize it. And in the construction of that temple, it was magnificent. And you'll remember a passage when Jesus said, um, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And they said it took Herod, what? 46 years to construct this temple. And Jesus said, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. In their lifetime, at the time of this writing, that temple was likely destroyed. The time of Hebrews. The temple was fading. It was obsolete. It was temporary. It was not substantial or lasting. But the temple where Jesus serves is. It's enduring. It will never fade away. Jesus is in that place. He's in that place, 
Um, what are some of his roles? What are some of his duties? Well, verse 3 tells us that he, he gives us something to offer. Verse 3 says every high priest offers gifts and sacrifices. Um, the, the priest would offer uh, gifts and sacrifices based on a number of things. If you, if you had something good in your life happen, you would prepare a thank offering or a gift offering or a food offering or a drink offering. And there were a multitude of offerings. And the priest, you would take it to them and you would tell them the purpose for it. And they would make an offer to God based on what the purpose is that you were giving it. Jesus gives offerings, but he does something different. He offers something that no other priest could ever offer. The pure and spotless Lamb of God. He offered a one-time gift. It wasn't a perpetual gift. It wasn't a daily gift. It wasn't a weekly gift. It wasn't an annual gift. It was a one-time gift that God accepted immediately. This gift was perfect. This gift was priceless. This gift was pure. And Jesus offered it. And it was sustaining and enduring. And it lasts. It's not like the blood of rams and goats that fades away and it needs to be symbolically re, redone every year. It was the one-time gift. And Jesus offered that. Verse 4 through 7 says that he mediates a better covenant. That he mediates a better covenant. He has a, the old covenant was fading. And we, we think in terms of covenant theology, right? If you're new in Christ, don't worry about this. But for those who have walked with Jesus for a while, you understand um, the understanding of covenant theology. That is that in the Godhead, in the Trinity, before the creation of the world, there was a declaration... That if we create, there has to be a covenant of redemption. That there's the chance that they will rebel and we will have to redeem them. And so before the creation of the world, Colossians says, Titus 1, 1 through 3 says, there was this covenant of redemption that if we create, we might have to redeem. We will have to save them. We will have to rescue them. And so within the Godhead, within the Trinity, within the three persons in one, God declared and agreed among himself that we will Create and we will redeem them. Then there was the covenant of works with Adam and Eve in the garden that if you obey, there is life. And if you disobey, there is death. And that covenant was shattered immediately, which brings about the next series of covenants, which are titled the covenants of grace. And those came under different titles, the Noahic covenants, right? I will never again destroy the world with a flood. And the rainbow is a sign of that. The Mosaic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, that one day there will come from your line the Redeemer of the world. There were all these covenants, but every one was a little better than the one before it. And every one, there was a promise of what was to come and what was better. And right now we live in the, in the Jesus Covenant where we're in this age of grace and there's forgiveness and redemption. But even we look forward to the next covenant, don't we? where there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more sin and no more crying and the kingdom of God that was initiated and inaugurated with Jesus will come in magnificence and and we will have a part in its reign. We look forward to that. But we don't go backward, do we? In the same way, why would you go backward to something that doesn't sustain, to something that holds no promise anymore, to something that's expired, to something that's obsolete? We see that Jesus mediates a better covenant. And this better covenant is marked by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You see that there? 
It says in the promise of this new covenant that we experience, no longer will a man have to teach his neighbor saying, thus says the Lord, and this is what the word says. We don't have prophets. You yourself have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within you that allows you to say what Gibson is saying rings true in my soul or it doesn't. He's wrong because the Holy Spirit indwelling within you sheds light on the truth to which you have uh, uh, saturated your life with. And the more saturated you are in this book, the more ammunition the Holy Spirit has within your life to shed light on the truths that you hear or the truths or the untruths that you should reject. That's why it's so important for you as a Christ follower to saturate your life with Scripture because you're allowing the Holy Spirit to shed His light, His Word on truth and giving you a discerning heart. Listen, if you're a Christ follower and you're not in the Word on a regular basis, if you're not allowing the Holy Spirit... Uh, the evidence of His Word to speak clearly into situations in your life, I don't see how you make good decisions. I don't see how you're not tossed back and forth by this culture. There's no wonder there are so many confused Christians who say, I don't know what's right or wrong anymore. Because they're not saturating their lives with the Word. This is the part of being in the new covenant, that the Holy Spirit indwells you. That He teaches you. He's your helper. He's your guide. He's your counselor. He leads you into all truth and He uh, corrects you and rebukes you and, and disciplines you when necessary. This internal witness of the Word is part of this better new covenant. Let's go back to verse 2 though. And in verse 2 we give another part of the job description of Jesus as the high priest. And I want to dwell here for a moment. It says that He's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He's a minister. What's a minister? Minister is a servant. A minister is a servant. A servant who works and serves on behalf of a people or a population. You often see the word show up in secular government. It's often used, of course, with clergy members as well. A minister represents... And works on behalf of and in the best interest of the people served. And so what does it mean that Jesus is your minister in the holy places? It means that Jesus ministers on your behalf in the holiest place imaginable. It means that we as unholy people, as Romans 3.23 says that there is no, no one righteous, not even one, that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that not one of us has a righteousness of our own, Romans 6, right? There is not one of you who can stand before God and say in your own um, righteousness that you are good enough to be in the presence of God. We must have the righteousness of Jesus Christ that clothes us. We cannot stand in the presence of God outside of Jesus Christ. It's His righteousness that clothes us. And not only does His righteousness clothe us, but He is your advocate on the inside. He is your advocate in the presence of God. He is, uh, as Seth read last week in chapter 7, He lives to make intercession for you. He prays for you. Do you know that Jesus, at the right hand of God, utters your name before God? as an advocate on your behalf, serving you as a minister in the most holy place. Sometimes people will come to me and they say, hey, brother, I need you to pray for me because your prayers are powerful. Nonsense. Nonsense. Say that about Jesus and yes. The most holy person in the most holy place as an advocate for you, praying for you, 
He's a minister for you in the holy places. He lives to make intercession for you. What else does he do as he ministers for you? Well, he makes promises to you, doesn't he? John 10, he says, uh, uh, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. I know them. They are my sheep. And nothing can what? Nothing can snatch them out of my hand. He holds you fast if you're in Christ. He told his disciples in John chapter 6, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose what? Nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is determined to finish the good work he began in you. Philippians 1.6. Right? God has initiated a work in your life and he's not going to let you go. He's going to hold you fast. He's going to sustain you. He's going to strengthen you. He's your advocate. He's your person on the inside. One of my favorite preachers who has gone on named Ron Dunn used to tell this story of taking his children to a county fair. If you've ever been to a county fair, there's the ticket booth and you buy a roll of tickets and they're incredibly, ridiculously expensive for the rides that you're going to change them in for. And he had four kids, I believe, and he, he began to roll out all the money that he spent on all these tickets and he was going to budget them. He was only going to give them a handful at a time so they wouldn't just blow it all in 20 minutes because as a good dad, he wanted the night to last, right? If I'm going to blow 100 bucks on tickets, by gush, we're going to make it last for at least an hour, right? We're not going to just ride the roller coaster eight times and then spend all your tickets. So we're going to budget these. And so we'd give them a number of tickets and they would run out and he would tell them to come back. And he said, after a while, this kid came up and he was a raggedy kid and I didn't recognize him. And he said, Mr., uh, you, you need to give me some tickets. He said, I'm not going to give you any tickets. Where's your parents? Go find them. They'll give you some tickets. I'm not going to give you any tickets. And he said, but, but sir... And he pointed, he said, your son told me that if I came over here and asked you for tickets, that you would give me tickets. And he rolled out a long roll and he handed him and he said, he's absolutely right. He said, why don't I give him tickets? He said, because my son made him a promise. I'm not about to make my son a liar. Do you know that Jesus, as your advocate, makes promises to you as the minister in the holy places? And when the accuser stands before God and says, why have you saved so-and-so? Don't you see what he's doing? Don't you see what she's doing? Don't you see the way they're living their life? Why do you save them? The deceiver, the, advocate, the, the enemy says about you. Do you know what the father says? I'm not about to make my son a liar. He promised them that if they put their faith in me, that I will hold them fast. That they are mine and that I will save to the uttermost those who have named the name of Jesus Christ. That have put their faith in Him. Do you understand, Christ follower, that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God? That you are eternally held in His hand. And there is nothing on earth that you should doubt at all in regard to your salvation because the one who promises is true and trustworthy. And for those outside of Christ, for those who have not yet put their faith in Jesus, why would you resist any longer? Why would you resist any longer? If you're hesitant about taking a step of faith or putting your faith in Jesus, the promises of God in Christ Jesus are what? Yea and Amen. They are sure. They are faithful. He will not break a promise to you. And there is a better covenant coming. And God is not about to make His Son a liar. What should we do in response to this message?
Place your trust in Jesus if you haven't. Really give, give your life to Him. I sat with a girl at a restaurant Friday in, in Horsham and as I've done a thousand times before, I, I wrote out the gospel on a, a torn piece of paper and, and I just, for two hours, we just drew out the gospel and what does this mean and what does the Bible say and, and just look at this and, and you can be in one of these places, you can be in a place of outright rebellion against God where your, your, your hand is held and shaking and fist. I don't want anything to do with God. You can be in that place of rebellion, but you can also be in a place of repentance where you're considering the claims of Christ. You're in a place like this. Maybe you've never been a churchgoer before and you've, you've been coming to church for a while and you, you're considering what is the Bible and what is this way of life and the old way of life is not satisfying me and I'm searching for something and that's a process of repentance. It's good. It's right to be there. Continue to pray and seek God and come to a place like this where, where God can speak to you in the midst of His congregation through His Word and, and through His people. That's a good spot. It's not a good space to stay. It's a good place to be if you're there, but persist. But if you stay there too long, you can become religious. Just never forget, it was religious people who killed Jesus. The most moral. The ones who knew the old covenant the best. They, they stayed and they refused to submit to Jesus, to acknowledge who He was. They were the most religious people of the day. And if you continue to pursue God through a method of works, of being good, of trying to be self-righteous, of cleaning up your life and saying, I deserve heaven because I'm a good person. That sort of religiosity will not save you. It's only when you come to a place of surrender and you say, Jesus, I, I yield. I, I give up. I surrender my life to you. I can't do this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. I can't be the God of my own life, the King of my own life, the Master of my own world. I need Jesus. I need You to forgive me and to save me. And there's no hope for me outside of You. When you come to that place of surrender, that faith, you'll experience all that I'm describing. For many others of you in the room, you have done that. You've surrendered your life to Jesus. And, and you've walked with Him through trials and difficulties and faiths and ups and downs and and. Different trials and different times when things were going well and boring times when you know, you've walked through them through all these different seasons of life and yet for some reason, maybe some of you at this point of your life, you're tempted to say, is it worth it? Is it real? Is it true? Persist in faith. Persist in faith even if it's just a shred. A shred. How much faith do you need? Jesus said, it's like a mustard seed, right? If you just have, just persist in faith and endure Endure through this trial. These trials are temporary. You can endure. And lastly, what we can do of this is understand Jesus' high priestly role. If you know what He's doing now, if you know that He's holding you, that He's praying for you, that He's advocating on your behalf, whether you feel it or not, He's, He's there holding you fast. Let that strengthen your faith. Oh Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we love You. And we thank You that You hold us fast. We praise You that You are praying for us, that You're interceding for us, that You're holding us, that You're our advocate before the Father, saying, I saved them and I will raise them up at the last day, that I will not let go of them, though all should fall around them, they are Mine. That they are persisting in faith. Father, we thank You for Your great mercy for Your great kindness that saves those who don't deserve to be saved. There's not an ounce of righteousness that I have on my own. There's nothing about me that You look down and say He is worth saving outside of the grace and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
But in Christ and, and as your creation, you call us valuable and deeply loved. You, your word says that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son. And whoever believes in him should never perish, but have eternal life. We thank you that this life is in your son. And so all around the room, Lord, and if there's those listening afterward online, I pray that you, that your Holy Spirit would begin to move in the hearts of people, that they would submit, that they would yield their life to you, that believers would persist and endure, though it seems our cultural Christianity that is, is gone Help us to be among the faithful, among the remnant, among those who persist in faith. Would you help us to do that in the name of Jesus? Amen.